Good morning, this is Craig Bryant, and I'm delighted to bring you this morning's Sunday School lesson. Um, it is really an important one in the scriptures as we are talking about Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. In fact, that's the title of our lesson today, Sacrificed. You're going to want to open your Bible, and we're going to skip around today and play a little hopscotch. We're going to start in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through part of 25. As you're turning there, no, we'll also be going into Psalms, into Hebrews, and of course the crux of our text is in the book of Luke. So we'll get to that in chapter 23 in just a moment. But first, Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. There is so much in these three verses. We could spend the entirety of the lesson on it. But briefly, you've heard Pastor Keith and our other pastors often use Romans 3.23, knowing that all of us are guilty and all are sinful. Yet Christ is our propitiation, the culmination of the salvation plan. And on the cross, he demonstrated for all to see the righteousness of the lamb being slain for sin, just as it happened in the Passover, which is the culmination of the Old Testament and the faith journey that began with people seeing as they were released from slavery, the final culmination of God's plan for that release. The parallels are incredible. And as we get into Jesus's part in that, we're going to begin our study in the book of Luke. So turn over to Luke 23. And let me just set the context. Now, those who've taught in the previous weeks have been uh, bringing some wonderful lessons. Last week was on Peter's denial. And in fact, today we're going to see a lot of people denying who Jesus is as he goes to the cross. But what's happened just prior to Golgotha is the trials. And I won't go over a lot of that. That's verses 1 through 32. But Jesus has basically passed back and forth in a trial situation. There are several people involved, starting with the Sanhedrin, the holy uh, tri tri uh, trial um, group that made sure that they took on the judgment of believers in the Hebrew faith. And they brought charges that were uh, false, of course, uh, onto Jesus. And then the second formal trial was um, that Jesus was brought before the Roman government. And as you see that happened, um, there were a number of things that people were trying to do in order to push along an agenda that they had. And Jesus was taken from place to place during this time where he was brought before Herod Antipas as the third part of this. Now, the key in this part of the situation is, like ping pong, back and forth we go across the different venues. And the situation is the same. They're just looking for any sort of trigger or any sort of twist and turn that they can make, either on the law or in a way that can incite people to just move Jesus along to where he would be crucified. 
And there's no fault found. And Herod Antipas was one who wanted him to just show off and do a miracle or in some way show who he was. And Jesus remained silent. And that's a critical piece as well because there's no question that the miracles of Jesus and the way that he had put things together in his ministry had shown time and time again his power, his ability to show the love of the Father, yet here they wanted their own audience and their own way of getting things done. Well, finally, Jesus goes back to Pilate. And as we know at that point in time, the mob has shown up and they want him crucified and Pilate just can't believe it, but he calls upon Jesus to be scourged and eventually taken to Golgotha. So through these trials and through these situations, in a short period of time, Jesus is pronounced guilty of basically nothing, but yet still sentenced to death. Now let's parallel that to today, where people are brought to trial for things that would bring a death penalty upon them. There's usually a multi-week or month trial that goes on before judgment is pronounced. The person is then put in jail for their crime. And then eventually there's going to be several different appeals that are made upon the behalf of the convicted. And across the years, before a death penalty situation is carried out, a person and his or her attorneys are given opportunity to make arguments for dismissal or for some sort of change to the death sentence. Time is on that person's side in the sense that in the United States, the court system takes a while in most cases to say someone's guilty and in all cases to actually carry out the sentence. What we see here in this story is that in a very, very short period of time, Jesus is brought forward and sentenced. And in those few hours, the whole world has turned against him, so to speak. And in fact, let's look in verses 33 and beyond as we get started in the New Testament and the book of Luke as to what happens. Verse 33 of chapter 23. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him written, This is the king of the Jews. And let's stop there in verse 38. The stage is set now for Jesus to be crucified. In just a few hours from trial to the crucifixion, he's gone to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, around him, we know, were the Jewish leaders who had just brought the charges the Roman soldiers who were there to execute him, and then at least those two criminals, if not their family and friends as well. We also know that Jesus' um, close friends and some of the women who had served him would have been there at that time as well. So all of this happening with loved ones around, 
and with the executioners around, brings what amounts to probably a small, riotous environment. There's going to be weeping. There's going to be casting of insults. There's going to be laughter, all sorts of emotions that are playing out. But going into what prophecy said that was so critical and clear to this in the book of Isaiah, verse 53, or sorry, book 53, verse 12, the Messiah would be killed along with criminals. And that is just unfathomable to someone who doesn't understand the Bible. Why would our Savior, first of all, be killed? But second of all, why would it happen amongst criminals? That just seems incongruous to the way that a human would write the story. Yet it's a great example of God showing that Jesus himself would be set apart from everybody else of all time, and that there'd be no question about that as the crucifixion took place. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 18, we understand that lots were cast for his garments. We just read that in the book of Luke. That's verse uh, 34. That corresponds to Psalm 22, verse 18. And we know for sure that the psalmist even knew in God's provision that there was going to be the gambling that goes on and the splitting up of the assets um, as the execution takes place. We can assume the same thing happened with the criminals as they divided up those assets that came to Golgotha with them. This, this carnival atmosphere, this noisy cacophony of activity is meant to bring shame to those that are being crucified, that in their last moments, they're going to be mocked in a way for the life that they live, the crime that they committed, and the sentence that's being carried out. In fact, let's read about that continuing um, as we start again back in Luke chapter 23. So verse 36 says, The soldiers mocked him, coming up to him, offering the sour wine. And they said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And verse 38, there was an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. The mockery in that statement was meant to be that people would say, look, a king is here, and look, what we can do is the Roman government. We're the ones that are your kingdom. We're the ones that are in charge. He was despised and rejected uh, by those that were there with him. And in fact, the prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53.3, that that would be the case. Now, Let's look at verse 39. We're going to camp out here for a few minutes on the two criminals, a critical part of this story. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanging there with him was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So, so far we've had the people in verse 35, the soldiers in verse 36, and now a criminal one of the two, who's mocking Jesus. And in every single case, they're saying, hey, he should save himself. They expect what most humans would, the, that a trial that brings death, that if someone was really special, they could get out of that. 
they could get away from that sentence that has been brought upon them. And yet, Jesus was fulfilling God's ultimate plan. No other world religion, no other um, contemporary of Christ who would be called as a world leader has ever done something that brings innocence, the guilt of death, as a penalty. It just does not show up anywhere in humankind history. Oh, sure, innocent people have died before, but not on this stage with this reason, with this kind of mockery, for this kind of situation. And friends, as I teach this lesson, many of you have heard this most of your life. But if I had a time machine, if time travel was a valid way of getting around, this is the place I would go. Not for the circus of activity, not for the mockery, not for the sadness, but for what is going to be the power of Christ shown in just a few minutes. I would want to see it firsthand. I, in fact, I haven't seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie that is so uh, realistic in its depiction of a crucifixion. And the reason I've chosen not to see it is I have a very difficult time watching that kind of imagery. But in human history, the culmination of this and Easter morning happened to be the crux of something that would be an incredible activity to understand firsthand and fully as a believer. And we see the criminal here that he's saying, you should take care of getting us down and getting yourself off this cross if you are who you say you are. But, verse 40, the other criminal answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed are suffering justly for what we are receiving when we deserve, our de when we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Friends, this is the first person who's documented to show that he understands that Jesus is truly innocent. The first person amongst all those that have gone through the trials, there's either been indifference or people proclaiming him guilty, but now we have a person who is dying and in his final breath, and he's able to rationally say, this man is innocent. I can draw a bunch of parallels to this in today's world, but let me just suffice to say there's one. All around us, people look for role models, for something to follow that they can have faith in. Unfortunately, many people choose a governmental leader or a bank account or some sort of human-made activity to say, this is what I will follow. And people are hungry to follow. You don't have to look any further than the political world we live in or the way that the COVID virus has taken shape where people are hungry for a leader to give information. Well, this criminal, and we don't know how long he had to await death, but we can certainly know it's a very short period of time, probably a matter of days since judgment was pronounced upon him. Jesus just had a couple hours, but here are criminals who had probably a couple of days or a very short period of time. But he has figured out in an extraordinarily short period of time 
by probably being around the trial, walking up to Golgotha with Jesus and now being executed with him, that this man is innocent. That means he had some predetermined knowledge or at least had a mustard seed worth of faith in who Jesus was. That's all it takes, friends. That's all it takes is a mustard seed of faith to start the faith journey. It doesn't take him going to college to get a degree or being baptized. For example, this criminal could not get off the cross to be baptized. He didn't get to go through a confirmation class. He just had a simple notion of who Jesus was, and he said he's innocent. And then in verse 42, he makes a request. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So as I listened to that, I could not imagine seeing that discourse go on firsthand. But the writer in all the Gospels that talks about the crucifixion has this same type of interaction where the first criminal disdains Jesus and says, save us and yourself, prove to me who you are. And the second one says, I'm guilty, you're innocent, please remember me coming into your kingdom. And that's what's happened. Jesus promises that that's going to be the case. That's an incredible way of looking at salvation simplicity. Now, friends, if you're someone who's wondering about what this means, don't wait until your own deathbed to try to think you'll have time to make a decision like this. Believe in who Jesus is. The Bible itself gives the whole proof story through witnesses, through fulfilled prophecy, through historical record of who Jesus is and what he did. And a simple faith will start you on a salvation journey. Don't miss that. Now, Let's read on and finish out what happens in the crucifixion. It's the sixth hour. This is verse 44. And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. We're going to skip over to Hebrews now uh, and look together at a couple of verses that are critical to see about how all this fits together. So I'm going to read to you, first of all, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the sins of the people committed in ignorance. What's being talked about here is that once a year, the high priest himself enters into what's called the Holy of Holies. He comes behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant uh, is found, and he enters in with blood to make atonement for himself and for all of those who've committed sin in ignorance, the Bible says. And then if you skip forward to verses 25 and 26. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place once a year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would not have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
those verses in Hebrews are talking about how Christ died once and it takes care of sin for all time. So when we go back into the book of Luke and read that verse again, verse 45 of chapter 23, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, friends, this is not you and I grabbing a pair of scissors and cutting a curtain in our home. This veil was very, very large. It was beautifully adorned. It was woven by hand. It would be several stories tall in the way that it's put together. And for it to be ripped in two would take a miraculous event to happen. And that's exactly what went on. That's part of what I would love to have seen Because basically, at that very point in time, when Jesus is giving up his spirit, he is the high priest who gives the once-for-all sacrifice. The veil is now torn in two so that mankind can come into the presence of God, not just the high priest himself, because the blood of Jesus being spilt opened that gateway. Now, I'm not trying to give you a theological lesson with this, What I'm trying to say to everybody who's listening in the sound of my voice is when you look at how the plan of God was taking place, it was all done to prove once and for all, to all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike, what Christ's sacrifice meant to humankind forevermore. And there's no way that you can refute that if you understand the Mosaic Law and the way that the temple was set up and the Holy of Holies was set apart. Christ himself is our temple, as we learn in Revelation 21. The Lamb is our temple. There's no need for a temple in heaven. There's no need for light because God and Jesus are there. They are our light. They are the temple. But in that time, it made it clear once for all what the sacrifice was. What an incredible truth that this is. Now, as we close today, I want to make just a couple of points about Jesus' death before we read the final verses. You've heard it said before, if you've been in church for a while, that there was no execution that went on where Jesus went unwillingly. These criminals that were on either side probably were doing everything they could to stay alive and to not have to go on to the cross. They probably didn't willingly go to the Golgotha. They did it under guard and under pretense of of trying to figure out, is there any way of escape? Jesus, as well, in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, had prayed, if there's any other way, Father, please let it be so. Remove this cup from me. But once it was clear that this was the plan, he willingly went to offer himself as the sacrifice. He would have done it for one person. He's done it for all people because he knew sin was the trap that kept us from being with God. And the second point is that Jesus willingly gave up his life as he took his last breath. In verse 46, let's read it. Crying out with a loud voice, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said that, he breathed his last. No one took his life away. He willingly gave it up as that sacrifice to finish God's plan of salvation. And notice in his last breath, he committed his life into the Father's hands just like he did as he began his ministry um, three years before that as an adult, 
just like has happened as he was a young man learning in Nazareth, just like he did as a young toddler being around the temple and being a young person learning at the feet of those who were teaching. In every way, he was trying to follow God's plan. What a example that is to all of us. Now, the same people who had been mocking him saw this happen. Let's read the closing verses of the chapter. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, the centurion is one of the Roman soldiers now, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. So a non-believer who was paid to execute or be around the executioners themselves and to stand guard saw it all happen and begins praising God. Out of great trial and tribulation can come great change of heart. Out of this wonderful sacrifice comes a person who is not a Jewish convert. He's not someone who's been a disciple He's a brand new person to the belief system because of what he saw. That goes for all of us. And the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breast. And all the acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. The witnesses that were there, either at the foot of the cross or down the road a bit, that saw this happen, were testimonies that could be given and that we can believe in because there is no question that this was not done in secret, that this was not done or made up as a story, but the witnesses from all the world's governmental authorities, religious authorities, the Roman government, those that came from other countries, those that were there to just walk by briefly during these hours, They all saw and heard what happened. And friends, as we close, we know that in three hours, the sun was darkened and that the world had a difference in it during this time of crucifixion. We know as well that when the veil was torn in two, that those who had been around the Holy of Holies on the outside could see inside for the first time. They didn't know exactly what to do, I'm sure. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how they went about their activities in the next few days. But what we do know is this. The world had changed forever, and salvation was done once for all. In Christ's last words, I commit my hands into, commit my spirit into your hands, we get the sense of God's plan being finalized once for all. Another gospel writer says, it is finished, that Christ speaks those words. And I can tell you that that's a good way for us to finish today. That as we look at our scriptures and we think about God's plan coming to fruition, those of us who believe for a long, long time feel great comfort in these words. And we just can't hear the old, old story enough. Those of you that are listening with new ears or don't fully understand and comprehend what this is all about, be like the centurion who, now hearing and witnessing it, has a mind change that says, surely this man is innocent, and you too can begin praising God. You too can have a life change, and you too, like that criminal who had a simple mustard seed of faith, can be saved today 
from the sins that you've committed because the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pray in just a moment asking for those that do have that wondering eye of, of need and understanding that your eyes will be open for the first time. But as we close today, know that Christ died for you, for your name and you alone. And all of us that proclaim him to you today do so wanting you to know full well that the love of Christ is big enough to cover any sins that you've committed. And we hope that you'll turn to him in faith today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, as we uh, look at this lesson, I'm drawn to those criminals that were executed right there beside Christ. I'm drawn to them because they too were guilty in every way that deserved death according to the governmental regulations of the time. The two of them had really no recourse. They had no hope. But yet, in that situation, one chose to believe and one chose to continue the insults and to just look for the supernatural magic. Lord, let us be people who are like the criminal that chose to believe, knowing we're sinners, knowing that Jesus himself was innocent, and knowing enough, simply enough to know that because we're guilty, we need Christ. So Lord, for anyone who's listening that needs to hear that message and understand it better, may they be touched by the Holy Spirit today to know that they can be saved from their sins. And Lord, as we look at the cross of Christ, we are so thankful that He endured it. We know full well that that took a great amount of planning on His part in the sense that He knew what was coming and He had to face it anyway. And He planned that it would be a part of His life even before the foundation of the world as a part of the Trinity of God. And so, Lord, we're grateful that Christ did that for us. And Lord, those of us who are believers, strengthen us in our belief for the days ahead. Help us to share this good news with all we come in contact with. And Lord, as we uh, go forward from this time, we pray that we will continue to grow our faith in a way that will be pleasing to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <music>